Who do you say that I am? So ask Jesus. I don't want you to answer that question about me. Who do you say that I am? So ask Jesus. How would you answer that question this morning? And why? Throughout history, this question has caused a lot of controversy. On one side of the spectrum, you have those who claim that Jesus is only human and not God. Only human, not God. On this side of the spectrum, you have people who claim that Jesus was only God and not human. And throughout history, as heretics sought to change things, so the church fought back and argued for biblical orthodoxy. The fact that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Who Jesus is and what he has done is the foundation for Christianity. And it is the basis on which Christian fellowship can be had. So if you remove who Jesus is according to the Bible, you rupture the foundation of Christianity. And soon enough, Christianity is left standing on nothing. Without the God-man Jesus Christ, there is no Christianity. If you have your Bibles, turn there to 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, you can basically start from the back in Revelation and then work forward just a few books, and uh, you'll get to the letters of 1 John. John also wrote 2 John, 3 John. He wrote Revelation. He also wrote the Gospel of John. So this is a man that the church has benefited much from uh, based on his writings. If you're taking notes, we ask three questions that the text all answers. Number one, who is this Jesus? Number two, how can we know this Jesus? And then number three, what is the goal of knowing Jesus? So number one, who is this Jesus? Number two, how can we know this Jesus? And then number three, what is the goal of knowing Jesus? I'll read uh, the first four verses here. You can follow along. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's ask the first question, point number one. Who is this Jesus? Did you notice that in the text here, Jesus existed eternally? He existed eternally. And he he starts off with that very thing. That which was from the beginning. So this is, you know, some people have said that, that uh, when it says that Jesus is from the beginning, that which was from the beginning, you know, they say, oh, well, you know, maybe they're referring to the Christian era. So the Christian era from the beginning was about Jesus. Or you might say, oh, the gospel message, it begins with Jesus. That which was from the beginning. But it's actually a lot more than just those things, even though those things are true. Here he's saying in time, before time, 
that which was from the beginning was Jesus. He existed even before the Father revealed him or manifested him, as your some of your Bibles might say there in verse 2. So you have in verse 1, that which was from the beginning, and then verse 2, the life was made manifest. So before Jesus was here on earth, he was then as well. He was from the beginning. And you get that from the tenses as well. You know, so when exactly did Jesus come into existence? Well, he was in the beginning. But he came here. He was with the Father, but the Father sent him here. Now, as John would have said. And John writing like he does, it, it, it should echo something, right? If you guys know the Gospel of John, and then if you know the beginning of the Bible entirely. So in Genesis 1.1, it reads, In the beginning, God created. So you're supposed, even before you get to God created, you're supposed to find Jesus in the beginning, right? In the beginning before even God created. He was there. And then in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then almost giving commentary on what was going on in Genesis 1-1 as God was creating in John's Gospel. He continues, through Jesus, all things were made, everything that we can see. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So John wants them to know that the Jesus they worship, because he's writing to Christians, right? He's wanting them to know that the Jesus they worship is none other than the pre-existing one. So Jesus eternally existed. We see also that Jesus is the Father's Son. Jesus is with is the Father's Son. You see that there in verse 3 at the very end. Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Um. Now, I have some Muslim friends, and you may as well, who think that Christians believe that Jesus was God's son, like I am my mother and father's son. And you may or may not have friends like that, um, but that thinking is completely wrong, just completely wrong. And so we have the opportunity to then clarify for them what Christians have thought historically are or is Jesus um, God's son, like I am my mother and father's son. The Bible says no. The Bible doesn't require us to understand son in the same way all the time. So we are physically somebody's son. Uh, and the Bible says that, that when Mary was conceived, or when she had conceived, uh, this was no natural conception, but he was conceived and born of the Virgin Mary, Matthew 1 says. So this is no natural conception. This is no natural birth. And language we see here is used in different ways. So picture, imagine this. We understand this as we use language. Imagine um, the lone traveler. The guy who on his motorcycle just loves going from coast to coast. Rides thousands of miles on his motorcycle. Uh, and he does this decade after decade after decade. You know, soon enough, this man... He takes on the characteristics of the road, right? So the road is weathered, has cracks in it. 
The sun beats down in it all the time, changing seasons. And here's this man who starts to bear resemblance of the road. So we would call him a son of the road. Like that's very natural for us to think something like that. So there's no reason why son in scripture must mean physical son of father and mother. So for example, Israel in Exodus 4, uh, Israel is called God's son. King David in Psalm 2 is called God's son. So it wouldn't be right for us to conclude then that all of Israel or King David is God's physical offspring. And really, Israel as God's son and then David, they point ultimately to God the Son, capital S, right? So this son language has to do with position, it has to do with authority, it has to do with oneness. So in John 5, there's this beautiful passage where Jesus speaks to the Jews about who he is, right? His own nature. And he says, the son does only, he does only what he sees his father doing. Whatever the father does, the son also does. Just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased. The father entrusts all judgment to the son that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. You're getting that equality there? The father has life in himself, so he's granted the son to have life in himself. You You see that equality there? When he's talking about son, that's talking about position, authority, oneness. Uh, turn over your, so turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. It's important to, to just go ahead and look at these things. And look how the son is defined. Right? John goes on, he says, We are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Jesus shares the same divine status as the Father. And this is everywhere in Scripture. So you see here how he's trying to correct these the false teachers who are saying that Jesus is God, but he wasn't really human. Here he's saying, look, Jesus is God. This, was, this is uh, the, the Jesus who appeared, and he is, in fact, the true God and eternal life. Um, you know, we can look at text after text after text, but even in the big picture, if you just look at Old Testament and New Testament and you try to understand, understand them, you begin to see how clear it is that Jesus is God. So in the beginning, right, who has power to create and who has power over the elements of nature? It's God, right? In the beginning, God created. And the New Testament, you know, hundreds of years later, I mean, when Jesus shows up onto the scene, what is he doing like in, in the passage that we read in the scripture, in the scripture reading, who has power over nature, who speaks to nature and has nature obey him. In our scripture passage, it says that Jesus rebukes the wind. Uh, you know, as a fun illustration, as I teach my children about um, who God is, you know, we might read the creation account. We might read how he stills the storm, how he rebukes the wind. He speaks to the sea. And uh, I say, okay, you know, Jeremiah, Ellie, you try and do what God did. You speak something into existence. Just just go ahead and do it. And they'll say something like, Play-Doh or Lego. And, of course, nothing happens. Now, that might seem like a, a really ridiculous illustration to make with them. Because it's so obvious that when we speak, nothing happens. But, really, when we come to the Bible, we see that when God does that, something actually 
happens, you begin to say, oh my goodness, who is this? That even the wind and the seas obey him, right? That question should be on our mind. If you read the Old Testament, you, you know that uh, God has authority over the spiritual realm. So when Jesus then shows up onto the scene hundreds of years later, what is he doing? I mean, who, who is aware of who he is? If you read the Gospel of Mark, you see that, you know, the Pharisees, they don't know who he is. They're questioning who he is. You know, who is this guy who's teaching and, you know, redefining the law in some ways or saying that he is the fulfillment of the law? Uh, so they don't know who he is. And even the disciples, they are always wrestling with who this Jesus is, even after his death and resurrection. But you know who gets it? The evil spirits. They say, what have, what, what have you come here to do with us? Have you come to destroy us? You are the Holy One of God. And Jesus tells these demons to get out. And so they listen and they obey. He has authority over the spiritual realm, just as God does. Uh, and then we know in, in the Old Testament that God is worthy of worship. Plenty of places we see that. And so when Jesus shows up onto the scene, let's say doubting Thomas, for example, he confesses, you are the righteous one. You are God. And then in Revelation, we see who is sharing the divine throne and receiving worship. It is none other than Jesus Christ. <clears throat> the sun here is relational language denoting authority, position, uniqueness, special relationship um, as the one who inherits everything. The one who is over everything. So Jesus has eternally existed. Uh, Jesus is the Father's Son. Third, Jesus is the word of life. Jesus is the word of life. And you get that at the end of one. The life was made manifest. Oh, sorry, the end of one. Uh, you know, we've seen these things. We've, we've heard him. We've looked upon him. We've touched him with our hands concerning the word of life. The word of life. The life was made manifest. And we have seen it, that is the life. And we testify to it, that is the life. And we proclaim to you the eternal life. So the emphasis here is on um, the fact that he's living. This was a living man and as he rose from the dead, he is still living. He is the word of life. 1 John 2.20 reads, This is the promise he made to us. Eternal life. So it's interesting, this real, living, breathing Jesus who was crucified and then rose from the dead, the word of life, not only was he actually living and breathing, but through his living and breathing, especially as he rose from the dead, he then grants us eternal life. And you see here again how John is correcting these false teachers. You know, don't believe these folks. He's telling the Christians, don't believe these folks. Don't believe these folks. But listen, this is the living word of life. I mean, no one here is getting away from the reality as John's teaching them. He wants them to be so clear who this Jesus is. And if you were to read later on, I'll just go ahead and turn there. First John chapter 2. Turn over to 18. Listen to what it says. Now he speaks about the people here who once claimed the biblical Jesus, but who now claims a false Jesus. But yet he says they aren't really Christians. So not everyone who claims a Jesus is actually Christian. He says, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, 
So if you can imagine, you know, he's talking about Christianity. He's talking about the church. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. So he's saying, they went out from us. They left the church. If they were really one of us, then they would have continued with us. He goes on, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So here he's, he's saying, look, no, not everyone who claims Jesus is really of us, is really Christian. So here he's making these helpful, he's setting up these helpful guardrails for understanding Christian belief, belief that actually saves. Okay, so that's point number one. Who is this Jesus? He eternally existed. He is the Father's Son. And then lastly, he is the Word of Life. Point number two, how can we know Jesus? Look there at verse one again. That which was from the beginning. Interesting that he doesn't even say Jesus, right? He's just saying that, that person. And he doesn't want us to rush these things, right? This is eyewitness testimony here. And he wants us to slow down and understand what he's saying. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard. So here he's bringing in all the senses. That which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon or like gazed at and comprehended as we gazed up and down. Which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. So you realize that, you know, in a sentence you have a, a subject you have a verb, right? And then you have a direct object, like Jeremy sat on the pew. So we haven't even reached a verb yet in, in this section yet. Because he wants us to understand all these things that lead up to the verb. That which we have heard, seen, looked upon, touched. And then in verse 2, he says it again. We have seen it. In verse 3, we have seen and we have heard. I mean, it's so sensory, isn't it? He's talking about, he's saying that he's an eyewitness of these things. Perhaps what John had in mind when he wrote, you know, we have seen him and we have heard him. I mean, maybe what he had in mind was when Jesus told the lame man, when he was lame for his whole entire life, he said, pick up your mat and walk. And those words then bring, bring strength to his dead bones and his muscles. That have been atrophied for since he was born. I mean, maybe when he wrote, we have seen him and our hands have touched. And maybe he had in mind, as he was writing these things, maybe he had in mind when he appeared to his disciples. Right? And they knew that Thomas was doubting. And this is what he said. Why do you doubt? Look at my hands and feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. And so we're placed right back there in the first century. You know, as a, as a touching they're touching the, the holes that were in his hands, the holes that were in his feet, the holes that were in his side. The apostles here, they are eyewitnesses to the incarnate Christ. And they take ownership, don't they? We heard, we saw our very own eyes. He's making things really clear. Everyone who denies this, he says, we experienced it. And they're legitimate witnesses. I mean, part of the apostolic witness was that they proclaimed that which they testified to, right? They're proclaiming something 
and they're proclaiming him. It's a person, not just a body of facts that anybody can come up with, but they proclaim a person. Now, surely facts, you know, Jesus was a man. He actually was living. We actually have touched him. Those are facts, but they proclaim a person. They're eyewitnesses to him. And it's easy to, to, to gloss over these things and think, oh, you know, there's nothing special about this. When we see something, we want to tell people. But this apostolic witness needs to be underscored, needs to be underscored because it is God's appointed means to bring the message of eternal life to everyone in the world. So he purposed in his plan and in his sovereignty and his wisdom that there would be eyewitnesses. And then when the eyewitnesses were dying, they passed on what they had seen as eyewitnesses. And so they wrote things down, which is why John is writing these very things. And they are to be witnesses. From the lips of Jesus himself, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And then when, when the, the disciples need to find a replacement for Judas, who do they find? They need to find an eyewitness, as Acts 1.22 says. He would become, the new apostle would become a witness to Jesus' resurrection. You know that these witnesses still speak? You guys really believe that these witnesses still speak. This is what uh, the Gospel of John says in John 20, verse 30. Speaking of his own Gospel, he says, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Here's another one in John's letter in 5, verse 13, 1 John 5, 13. He says, I write these things to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So let me ask you guys, have you guys ever evangelized to someone? I, I know I have. But th there was so much of me in my younger years, and a little bit in me now, who, who thinks that if I open people's minds up to the Bible, if, I, if I'm evangelizing my friend, I'm talking to them about Jesus, I don't necessarily say, look, here, look at what it says. I, I usually just say, oh, let me just tell you something. And it's like almost my confidence is in telling you something as opposed to saying, you need to look here. But if we actually understood the fact that these are the eyewitnesses, then we will say, I have absolute confidence. You need to look here. So in your evangelism, let me ask you a question. When was the last time you actually opened up the word with somebody as you're sharing the gospel to them? And if it has been a while, why, why, why has it been so long? Could it be that maybe you don't believe in the trustworthiness of the scriptures? Regarding this apostolic message, these are the eyewitnesses. But it is interesting that we can have such great confidence <clears throat> as we preach the same gospel. It is true that God's word brings life whether we are speaking it or whether we are reading it. So I don't mean to say that this, <clears throat> I don't mean to say that you shouldn't speak it. You should speak it. But your word should always be lining up with the apostolic gospel, what we find here. So in your life, what is your confidence? I mean, what gives you boldness? What strengthens your evangelism as you hold out the trustworthy message of Jesus Christ? Isn't it awesome that we don't have to shrink back in uncertainty when people question us 
and challenge us about what the Word of God actually says. We should have confidence there because there are going to be a lot of attacks and people attack us from all different ways, all different facets of the attack. Um, so, for example, no one um, who wants to take historical facts seriously doubts the historicity of Jesus, that Jesus actually lived. Nobody, if they're being serious with history, actually believes that, whether they be Christian or Christian. So you know what happens um, as there are multiple attacks is people shift from whether or not Jesus actually lived to, oh, is this really true? So there's a shift there in their attack. And some people, they attack the Bible. This is like a textual attack. And they say, oh, you got it wrong. The copies were tampered with. And actually, Islam makes this claim a lot. And they say, well, can we trust the sources? Can we trust these eyewitnesses? The answer is absolutely. So we have sources. Do you guys know about these sources? There, there are plenty of resources. Um, no literature from the ancient world compares to the sources we have from the Bible throughout history. So there are 15,000 manuscript copies. That is like pieces of, uh, you know, whether people are writing on leather or a certain type of plants that would hold, you know, ink and things like that. We have 15,000 pieces of evidence that show us that the Bible is trustworthy. And the earliest dates back, maybe one has said, a trusted scholar has said the late 90s AD. That, that's incredible. 6,000 manuscripts are in Greek, so the language of the New Testament. And about 9,000 in other languages, because the message of the gospel spread everywhere. So you got it in Latin, you got it in Arabic, you got it in Syriac. And some date as far back, according to some sources, it's 50 to 70 AD. We have complete New Testament books from about AD 200. Complete New Testament books from 200 AD. That's incredible. Most of the New Testament, including all the Gospels, survive from 250. The entire New Testament, including the Greek Old Testament, survives from about 325. That's incredible. And from all these manuscripts, Christians and non-Christians, mind you, right? Non-Christians who are scholars of the text they recognize its reliability. But that's what they say. Oh, but it's myth. It's, it's a lot of myth, which is the next one, which we'll get to in a second. You know what else is impressive? Not only do we have all these manuscripts, but if you compile the writings of the early church fathers, so, so the, 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 the pastors from the second and third centuries, if you compile everything that they have said, you would be able to put together the New Testament, the whole thing, but 11 verses. Everything but 11 verses. That is incredible. It means, actually, that they're working with a body of text, right? So while some people attack the text, other people say, oh, it's just myth. The, what the text says is true, but, you know, they made it up. To put it nicely, one has said, these scholars are determined to read things in new ways. And this is where they rewrite history. And people do this today. So there are people, uh, the former president of Iran including, has said that the Holocaust did not exist. And just like people say that, they go back to Jesus and they say, oh, well, Jesus was actually married to Mary. That's the, that's the reality. The Bible is a myth developed by Jesus' followers then. But if you think about it, if you're really going to say, you know, that what the, what the Bible says is myth, and really Jesus did this or that or this, um, 
if you are a Christian and you're living in the first century, why would you invent Christianity? Right? You're a Jew. You believe you, your people are God's chosen people. You believe you worship the one true God. You have the true religion. Right? Why would the Jews all of a sudden convert to Christianity and then risk persecution, risk their lives, make their lives more difficult? Right? Sociologically, I mean, there's a lot of questions there that, that have yet to be answered. So if we believe that, it's all myth. You, t- take this one, right? Um, the Jews, all of a sudden, basically, stopped celebrating the Sabbath. Right? For thousands of years, they, they celebrate the Sabbath and these ritualistic things. And then all of a sudden, they stop like a bunch of Christians, a bunch of people. Even though that's God's law that ought to be obeyed, and if you don't, then there's severe consequences. What explains this change to observe the holy day from Saturday to Sunday? It's explained by the resurrection, isn't it? That's the day when the Lord Jesus got up from the dead. It's no longer the Jewish day of rest, but on the first day of the week. Um, and remember, that would have made their lives more difficult because it, it wasn't an off day, a holiday. So oftentimes Christians, they would gather before dawn. Okay, so you think 9 o'clock is early? Christians throughout history have been gathering at many different times, oftentimes before they began their work. That is, before the sun went up. Other questions, right? Why would they stop practicing the law? Why would they stop practicing circumcision? Why would they stop worshiping at the temple? All these things are really big issues. Uh, And then with the change, it shows, look, this wasn't just myth. In relation to... um, the Bible, it is reliable as we have the eyewitness accounts. You know, everybody believes something about Jesus. Everybody has a doctrine of Jesus, whether they are attacking the text, whether they're believing a myth, and for us as Christians. Um, let me encourage you to be discerning in who you listen to and who you read. So if you're getting your doctrine of Christ from Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code or whatever else he continues to write... Right? You've got to know his history is bad. You can do bad history just because you publish a book doesn't mean that you are a good historian. You, don't, you also don't want to get your doctrine of Christ from someone who avoids historical questions. So if you're listening to a pastor and they avoid answering questions like, did God the Son really come in the flesh? Or did Jesus Christ really rise from the dead? And when he returns, is he really going to return in bodily form? People who sort of sidestep those questions, something is wrong. Because clearly that's what it says in the Bible. You want to get your doctrine of Christ from the word. So study history. Study the facts. If you guys want to look up some other stuff on this, uh, let's say the the evidence for the resurrection, the reliability of the New Testament manuscripts, the Old Testament manuscripts, uh, you can go to josh.org. This is Josh McDowell's website. And he just presents some helpful factual information that could be useful for us. And we as a church need to get our doctrine of Christ from Scripture. So one way that we as a church uh, strive to remain faithful to the biblical witness, the eyewitnesses, is just preach expositionally. All right, so we're just going to take a passage of text like we are this morning from 1 John 1, 1 to 4. And we're going to teach what it actually says. Because uh, the farther away I go from the text, the more I'm relying on myself. And the more I'm relying on myself and teaching stuff that's apart from the text the farther away we get from the eyewitnesses, right? So we want to teach what is in line with what is already written, the eyewitnesses.
And that's and, and you can see it. That's what they're doing, right? They are proclaiming Jesus. And so for for me as a pastor, I am to proclaim Jesus and all of God's word, as the Bible says. So we as a church, we want to get our doctrine of Christ from Scripture. And one way in which we do that is through expositional preaching, as all of Scripture points to Jesus Christ. So we looked at uh, we looked at who Jesus is. We looked at how we can know Jesus. And last, we look at what is the point of knowing Jesus. Another way of asking the question is, why are Christians so dead set on proclaiming this Christ? Why talk about Christ all the time? And look at verses 3 and 4 for the answer. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So in the face of false doctrine, when there are false teachers teaching and leading people astray, departing from the biblical set of doctrines and departing from a biblical church, he says, we remind you of Christ come in the flesh, God who is actually man, right? That's why he's saying we encountered him with all of our senses. This is who he is, and this is what we ought to believe. And he puts this in this language of fellowship. I mean, there's a lot of confusion about fellowship today. Like, fellowship can be had over some barbecue and some sausages, and that's where we just go to shoot the breeze and uh, have some beers if you drink beers. Um, But that's not biblical fellowship. Biblical fellowship here is so much more than just shooting the breeze with other people. Biblical fellowship... Is, is, is more like partnership. So, so we can get the idea from, let's say, sports. Um, to do these things well requires partnership. So for the sports team, you wear the same colors. Uh, you bear the same team name. Every player must know his or her responsibility so that when, when it comes to game day, the team is ready to play. And team partnership is shared with same commitment, same values, same purpose, same goal. Whether that be, you know, getting the best record, winning that trophy, bragging rights to come in first place. Christian fellowship is something like that, but so much more because you're actually doing that with God. So we don the jersey, so to speak, of God's team. And God, you could say, is our owner. So we put on this jersey and we live about our lives. And so when everyone sees us, they know, oh yeah, he is on God's team. He is a believer. And he shares the same purposes, the same passions, the same will, the same thoughts, the same desires as God himself. That's fellowship there. The same beliefs, the same belief system, the same ethics, etc., etc. And certainly the same Christ. So you remove the biblical Christ from that, And then all of a sudden, you are on a very different team. So our goal is not to win, you know, the trophies, not to get the trophy that gets dusty or gets put inside a box, never to be seen again. What Christians labor for is the glory of Jesus Christ, the glory of God in the resurrected Jesus Christ. He is, in fact, the goal, the inheritance that never perishes or spoils or fades Jesus Christ 
himself. As him who is fully God and fully man. They have seen him. They have heard him. They have touched him. They have gazed upon him. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And to believe in him, you have fellowship with the church. And most importantly, he says, our fellowship is with God. That's the most important thing about Christian fellowship there. So if you are a, if you are not a believer and you're visiting with us today, um, we're glad you're here. I'd love to talk to you more. If you have questions about, you know, the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ, I love talking about that. Um, but let me ask you, what are you partnered with? What jersey are you wearing right now? And your friends will be able to know, right? I mean, do they really see that you are living for yourself, maybe? Living for the world, maybe? Right? It, wouldn't it be fascinating, if, if you're visiting with us and you're not a Christian, to ask your friends, what do you think I am living for? And I hope that when you do that, you would be able to see that what it is that you're living for is probably temporary. That what you are living for probably fades. That what you're living for probably runs out. Even if that's your own life. If that's your own fame. If that's a position in your job. If that's even the love that you think is love. The great news is that Jesus Christ is the inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. And he has come to save sinners. So the Bible says that God gave his son... To die on the cross for sinners. People who were made in God's image. Made to to reflect God. And made to be in a loving relationship with him. But we rebelled. And we pursued other things. We understood. at, At least a little bit. That there is a God. But then yet we rejected him. And then we pursued our own things. So we wanted to change what God had revealed. But in God's love. He sent his son to bear our sin. Where we deserve death and judgment. And so he bears our sin. He bears the weight of that and the wrath that we deserve on the cross. Because only a God who is God could bear the weight of our sin. And only a perfect man like Jesus could accomplish this great salvation. This is what John fourteen six says. I am the way, the truth, the light, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And so Jesus calls you to repent and believe. That's part of the good news. You understand you have fellowship with God the Father and Jesus Christ when one repents and believes and runs to God and turns from their sin. And when one does, you have forgiveness, right standing, and true fellowship with God. If you're a Christian, I wonder what your, how your partnership with God is going, your fellowship with God. What are you doing to increase your fellowship with God? He has commitments, you know. So what are you doing to understand those commitments more and more? What are you doing with the word? Do you read it daily and are you praying daily to understand more of who your God is and what are the commitments he has made and what his desires are and what his heart is and what his will is for you? fellowship with God that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us the big deal is and indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son 
Jesus Christ. So Christian, what is your fellowship with God like? First we saw and we asked and answered the question, who is this Jesus? Second, how can we know this Jesus? Third, what is the goal of knowing Jesus? Who is this Jesus? He is the God-man. How can we know? Because we have eyewitness testimonies. And what is the goal of knowing Jesus? It is because he has eternal life. And he saves us from our sin. And we know him through the eyewitness testimonies and through the power of the Spirit. Without Christ, you do not have Christianity. He is the proclamation message who is to be proclaimed and is to be believed in. And it's in him that we find fellowship with God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for the confidence we can have in your scripture. As we know that all of your word proves true. Because you never lie, Lord, we thank you and we praise you in the fact that you do not lie and you do not change. So, Lord, may we have boldness in knowing and in believing that you are the Christ, God, who became man to die on the cross for sins. So, Lord, we pray that as we live our lives that it would truly reflect the fact that we have fellowship with God. So whether we are going to Starbucks or going to have lunch or coming to church or going to work or playing sports, Father, we pray that in it all we would love one another and so love you where the whole world would be amazed at the fact that in them they have something different than the world does. In them they have Jesus Christ. So make our testimony strong, we pray. Make First Baptist testimony strong as we seek to minister to those in Hacienda Heights. And we pray these things for your name and for your glory. Amen.